Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Dr. Carol Francis Talk Radio Show. Let's make life happen together with authors, scientists, researchers, both inside the box and outside the box of understanding so that you can live a life full of your success, curiosity, enjoyment, happiness, and richness of life in every respect. Let's go beyond our limits, and let's help others go beyond their limits as well. Welcome. When an individual has been abused as a child, there are particular complications that occur that is different than individuals that are abused as adults. And while abuse in either age is awful and complicated and requires a definite recovery process, child abuse has a special set of complications. And to help us discuss that is is Dr. Bernie Siegel, an amazing individual who has touched lives for decades, including mine. Welcome, Dr. Bernie Siegel. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I mean, well, how do you want? You... Well, I, my brain is already going. <laughs> Good. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> because there, I mean, people I've known, <clears throat> as well as, um, you know, psychologists like Alice Miller, a quote from her. But let me, there's a woman who came into our office one day. I was a surgeon, but I began. Because in one of my patient statements, I need to know how to live between office visits. And she said, I can't take you mm-hmm. home with me. So mm-hmm. I started support groups. And um, mm-hmm. one of the people who showed up had scleroderma, which is a collagen disease. It, it's like thickening of the skin, let's put it that way. But all the organs get thick. And yeah. it's like you build a wall around yourself. And when she told me her life story, mm-hmm. I thought it fit very well. She had mm-hmm. alcoholic, abusive parents who literally told their children to commit suicide, and they did. And she was the only one mm-hmm. who didn't do it right and so is was still alive. Um, I said to her, bring me one of your baby pictures so I can show you how beautiful you are. She said, my parents mm-hmm. never took one. They're real estate agents. You want to see the house? I didn't know wow. what to do for her, okay? I'm not a psychiatrist. So I did the most important thing I learned later from Helen Keller. Um, because Helen Keller says um, that deafness is darker by far than blindness. Mm-hmm. I often ask people, would you rather be deaf or blind? And except for musicians, everybody says deaf. But mm-hmm. when you don't listen to people as well as yourself, you can't help them. You can't participate. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I sat there in front of Susan, not knowing what to do. And she screamed and yelled and told me all these horrible stories and... Uh, you know, and one day I said to her something a little obscene, so I won't say it, about her parents. You know, oh, mm. your parents. <laughs> and she yeah. said that was the day she began to get well because mm-hmm. I got tired of listening to her complain and scream and yell. And this is a quote from one of her letters to me. Mm. And then we'll give you more quotes. She said, I had no control over the parents who raised me. But when I let love into my prison, it changed every negative item in my life. 
and turned them into something meaningful. Oh, wow. And literally, she became my teacher. Um, she was such, so spiritual, so beautiful, that she became my therapist, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, once she transformed herself. And the other was, you know, everybody's telling her when you're going to die. Well, she didn't die until last year, which was, let me think, about 30 or more years later, Um you know, because doctors really didn't know what to do with her because she didn't die. They didn't know how to treat her, but she was treating herself with her love and uh, went on for at least 30 or more years, um, way back when in my, uh, uh, you know, history. And then in reading, I came across this by Alice Miller. <clears throat> she said, our, our childhood is stored up in our bodies. And although we can repress it and trick it with medications, you know, it can't be eliminated. And it will not stop tormenting us until we stop evading the truth. Mm -hmm. And that was another powerful. Because when, again, from psychiatrists, psychologists, you know, way back when, when all this was thought to be crazy, what difference does it make, you know, what happened to you when you were a kid or this or that? But when they started doing studies... One is a simple one at Harvard. They were simply asked the students, did your parents love you? If they said no, by middle age, 98% had suffered a major illness. If they said yes, 24%. And down at Johns Hopkins years ago, I forget the name of the psychiatrist, she had students draw a picture of themselves and fill out a personality profile. And then she looked them up decades later and she got in touch with me because I was doing a lot of mind-body things and being called a nutcase, you know, by other doctors. What difference does it make? But she said, I could predict what diseases they were going to get and what part of the body they would get it in. Um, And also, this is the problem with medicine, you see, because when I wrote articles and sent them to a medical journal, about things like drawings, you know, and dreams and, and emotional events that were going on in patients' lives, it came back, the article, saying, this is interesting, but it's not appropriate for our medical journal. So I sent it to a psychiatry journal. It was sent back again. This time, I laughed at the comment. It said, yes, it's appropriate, but it isn't interesting. We know all this. And that's mm-hmm. the part that I try to get across that the medical profession needs to understand. People are not mechanical objects. You know what I mean? It's not like fix the plumbing, fix the electricity. It's the human being, as Jung said. I mean, we're a unit, mind and body. So you can't separate that experience. Uh, I mean, I I can't stop talking because I keep thinking of all these people in my life. The phone answering machine, Dr. Siegel. Do you have Jack Kevorkian's phone number? I want to be dead. Oh, wow. I called her up, and I said, what, what is it? And her name is Becky. She said, my father sexually abused me. I have a brain tumor. I want to be dead. I said, Becky, I'll be your father. I'll be your CD. It's chosen dad. That was a mm-hmm. label given to me by a suicidal teenager. Um, and I said, I'll be your CD. You're a child of God. I love you. Send me some drawings. And she sent a picture, one of her face with spots all over it. What is that about? That's how many times my father did it, all each spot. Wow. 
then she drew a picture of a tree with this big black knot hole in it. And I knew those were the years her father abused her, that the tree is, you know, her life. And if you measured it, you'd know when that was. And I, you know, as I said, I began to love her and be in touch with her. She lived in Texas. We were on the phone, but I did get down there to visit her. And she's alive today, too. And I said to her also, I got a kick out of it. I said, change your name. Let's start a new life. And she picked my mother's name, which she didn't know. But I say is no coincidence. She became Rose, which is my mm-hmm. mother's name. And I see this over and over in people because, um, oh, I forgot the book that, um, you know, about genetics and how when you're a child, um, your, your brain wave pattern is like that of somebody in, in hypnosis. So what your parents are saying to you literally hypnotizes you and creates your life, which it can destroy at the same time, you know, because they're not saying, oh, you're the greatest person in the world all day long. This is a quote, because I don't make up any of these stories. I met this lady uh, at one of my lectures, and she was dressed so outrageously in a red outfit that I was getting a headache because she was sitting in the front row, I mean, her clothing. (laughs) And I thought, how does a husband let somebody out of the house looking like that? But at the end of the lecture, she handed me a letter to read. And when I opened it and read it, part of it said, when I was a child, my mother dressed me only in dark clothing so nobody would notice me, told me I was a failure, and I constantly embarrassed her. Wow. And she said, your work gave me permission to be the person I was meant to be, Hmm. the authentic person. And I said to her, you didn't need permission that's what everybody has to realize. But when you've been hypnotized by your parents, you think they're right. And I... she said in the letter, I went out and bought a red dress and red high heel shoes. <laughs> and I'm laughing because when I read that, I thought, oh, now I understand why she was wearing that outfit. And right. whenever we meet, she's always got on a bright red outfit. So I love it when she's in the audience and I say, would you please stand up, and up comes the red dress, and everybody gets a kick out of it. But you see, she she saved her life. I think the biblical line is, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. If you become the submissive, sweet little kid to make mommy and daddy happy, or, you know, it doesn't even have to be abuse. It's just, you know, do this, do that. That's how we want you to look. That's what we want you to do. Um, then you give up your life. But when you're willing to lose the untrue self, as she did, then you save your life. So he who seeks to save his life will lose it, but he who's willing to lose his life will save it. And be, you know, you need to have the courage to speak up and understand that. And, yeah, it helps enormously to have someone else let you know they love you and they care about you. So doctors, school teachers the next-door neighbor, grandparents. I mean, they can all step in and let you know you're loved. I mean, one of my personal experiences, which I didn't know till I grew up and had, you know, medical knowledge, uh, as crazy as that may sound, my mother was very sick with hyperthyroidism, lost, I mean, she was like a bag of bones. She'd lost so much weight. They told her, don't become pregnant. It could kill you. But oh, her dear. mother... 
wanted her to become pregnant so she could have a grandchild. So she, my mother said she had me lie on the sofa and just kept feeding me all day long. I gained a few pounds and became pregnant. And then her care was a disaster, and what she went through was in labor for a couple of weeks. Nothing comes out. And they said to her, you can't survive a cesarean section. We've got to get that kid out. And so my mother said they reached in, pulled you out, what's called the high forceps. And wow. she said, they didn't hand me a child. They handed me a purple melon. That's my mother's exact words. I'm sure wow. that was from all the hemorrhage and battering that I had taken. And she said, we wrapped you in a kerchief, put you in a covered carriage, and hid you behind the house so we wouldn't upset anybody. I said, then why am I not a drug addict? Why didn't I die? Uh, you know, an alcoholic? Well, how, what, what are you talking about? She said, oh. And, well, let me interrupt, because why I asked that of her. In the 1800s, the orphanages had about 100% mortality rate. And all the caregivers were told, don't touch each the other children. You know, don't touch the other children. You'll spread the infection. That's what was killing these kids. Nobody yeah. was touching them. So their immune function goes down. Their brains don't develop well. I mean, we know this from, you know, studies of massaging newborn infants or premature um, yeah, I know kids who were supposed to die, infants who were supposed to die, and the doctors then said, well, they, there's no point keeping them in the intensive care unit, so if you parents want to hold your child here. And the mother put puts it against her bare breast, and the child starts suckling and comes back to life. So I said to my mother, then how did I survive if you're hiding me? And there were photographs in our album of a covered carriage with my smiling mother. I When I was a kid, I thought, oh, I must have been sleeping, you know, <laughs> when you looked at it. But I realized now they were hiding me. But my mother said, oh, her mother, the good old grandmother, took me. She said, pour oil all over you and pushed everything back where long four or five times a day. Then I realized wow. I was the most loved kid on the planet. You know, I'm getting massaged every few hours. So I'm lying there not thinking you're not good looking. That's why I'm thinking, wow, boy, do they love me. And I'll tell you how those body memories, why this takes its toll of adults. Fifty years later, as an adult, I have a shaved head, which I did way back in the 1970s, and that was symbolic of, which I didn't know it, but I just went and shaved my head of needing to uncover spirituality and also like the head of an infant. So I go to the massage therapist, and for the first time, the guy was very busy, so I said, fine, your wife can massage me. So she did it. I knew when she put the oil on my bare head and started massaging, I went back to being an infant. The wow. memories came right up. And I lay there in total bliss. But when I opened my eyes about 10 minutes later, the room was filled with people. And I said, what the hell's going on? I'm getting a massage. Her husband was standing at the foot of the table. He said, we thought you had a heart attack or a stroke. We could not oh communicate goodness. with you. I said, yeah. I said, I became an infant again because of your wife's hands. Because he had massaged me many times and it never happened. But that shows you what Alice Miller was talking about, how those memories are stored in us. And the painful ones take their toll on those organs. I mean, a lot of times I'll say to people uh, when they're in pain or have a disease, what's it like? What are you experiencing? 
See, and if the word pressure pops out, as it did one person, what's the pressure in your life? What do you have to eliminate that's causing you pressure? See, so, and, and another, a child, failure. I said, well, what does failure mean? Well, my body is failing. It has cancer. Uh, it's failing me. I said, no, that's not my question. My question is, how does failure fit your life? Oh, my parents committed suicide when I was a child, so I must have been a failure as a child. Oh, dear. Yeah. And there was a reporter who thought I was nuts, you know, this mind-body. So she, But she was given a job to interview me. And I knew when somebody thought you were nuts, it wasn't a fun interview. <laughs> <laughs> so I said to her, draw a picture, and then I'll be done with my patients and sit and talk with you. She drew a picture with a big clock in it with one hand pointed at the 12. So I said to her, what happened when you were 12 years old? Well, I don't like deadlines. I said, excuse me, there's only one hand on the clock. What happened when you were 12? And then she burst into tears and had been sexually abused. And, you know, then people don't deny it, if you know what I mean. They go home and really begin to work on their life. Mm -hmm. And and when the child feels loved, one more case history, um, you're walking through the house, you trip and fall into the fireplace at Christmas time. She put her arms out, you know, to keep her from falling all the way into the fire. But her arms and her neck and chest were badly burned. And the parents called me because I had taken care of her sister. And uh, uh, she, the mother said, do you remember her yelling at you, I hate you? Because when I show up to take care of her in the hospital and the wounds, listen, it doesn't feel good. She's a kid. She just screamed, I hate you at me. And the mother said, one day you said, well, maybe someday you'll love me. I don't remember saying that, but knowing me, I'm sure I did. Um, but as she grew and had these scars, one summer she came in and said, you know, i got to get a job this summer. I said, I know where I can get you a job. It's in a nursing home. They need help. She said, oh, good, okay. Now, what I knew was that she'd have to wear a special outfit there. They had a uniform for the AIDS. So her scars would show. And her name is Madeline. And she took the job and came back a month or two later. And I said, well, how's it going? She said, nobody noticed my scars. I said, Madeline, when you're giving love, you're beautiful. Mm -hmm. And she became a nurse, too. And then the gift to me was years later, the phone rings. Yes, Madeline, what is it? I'm getting married. My father died. I want you to be my father at the wedding. And the song that they played while we danced was um, Kenny Rogers singing, Through the Years, You Never Let Me Down, You Turned My Life Around. And that's the part to me is the greatest gift. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not curing every disease or getting people to live forever. It's getting them to experience love and especially the Mm -hmm. self-love you know that, and it's not about being perfect. It's about loving yourself, and that's where you know we can laugh. But pets don't have that problem. They don't look in the mirror and say, "Oh my God, you know, you got to do my fur. Take me to the beauty parlor." <laughs> I just bathed one of our pets today and mm-hmm. gave him a haircut. I mean, mm-hmm. he doesn't get mad at having matted fur. You know what I mean? Um, but I'm trying to keep him looking good. And, um, you know, there's so many poems, uh, 
one that Ann Landers had about all the things you can do. You know, start the day without caffeine, get going without pep pills. It's a whole long list of things. And um, ends with, and if you can, you're almost as good as your dog. And a lot of times I'll read that seriously <laughs> to people that they don't know it's a joke at the end. You know, and they're all listening seriously to what I'm saying about taking care of themselves and not treating a rich friend better than a poor friend and face the world without lies and deceit. And then you finish with, and if you can, you're almost as good as your dog. Then they laugh. But, you know, the animals, well, think about it. You know, parenting. You know how many times you see a picture uh, of a pig nursing a tiger? Yeah. You know, and you say, what's going on? You know, but it's that love. It's that feeling for life. And they don't say, oh, the tiger could grow up and kill me and eat me. No, it's a baby. I need to help it and save it. And the only way you will ever know yourself, think of the ugly duckling, okay? Mm-hmm. And that ugly duckling, that's why it struck me, lived the story of the patient I told you who bought a red dress. Because, but, see, she went away saying, my mother's words were eating away at me and maybe gave me cancer. The ugly duckling leaves home, and the story isn't about my horrible mother, I've got to get away. He's off on his own, out in the world. And one day, what is he on? Important symbol, a still pond. And he sees a bunch of swans. And he looks down thinking, boy, I wish I were a swan. And what does he realize? I am a swan. Look, I am a swan. And Joseph Campbell used this also to teach. He said, it's like meditation, yoga. He, a tiger dies giving birth. The goat she was chasing come over and say, hey, we can't let this little baby die. Come on, let's take it along. We'll take care of it. So the tiger grows up thinking he's a goat. He doesn't know. What does he see? Goats all the time. And then another tiger comes running over one day chasing the goats and sees him and says, what are you doing here? You're a tiger. You're not a goat. And Campbell has a sense of humor because the tiger goes, bang. And he says, here's a piece of meat. And the little tiger says, no, no, I'm a vegetarian. But he said, ultimately, the tiger takes him to a pond and says, look, you're a tiger. You're not a goat. And if you don't quiet your mind, though, you're never going to see who you are. Because as long as those words are rattling around in your head, uh, you're in big trouble. And I may say, I, I can tell you how to bring up children. Um, my parents both went through a lot, so they learned. Well, to quote my father, his father died of tuberculosis, leaving six children and a wife with nothing. Wow. What they went through was hell. And yet I heard my father, when being interviewed, say, one of the best things that ever happened to me was my father dying when I was 12 years old. So... When I met him afterwards, I said, Dad, what the hell are you talking about? He said, it taught me what was important about life. And he was. He was one of the gentlest, sweetest men in the world. He never punished anybody. He was always helping everybody. I mean, i got to give you an example of, of parenting. I broke a neighbor's toy because I was jealous that he had something I wanted. And, you know, I'm a kid, so I did it when we were playing in the yard. His parents told my parents. So, of course, they're going to go get him you know, a replacement. 
And my father came home the next day from work, handed the toy to me and said, I know you wanted this. And then he walked into the house. And I sat there knowing that he was saying to me, if you want to keep it, that's you. That's up to you. But I also knew that my head would explode (laughs) from guilt Mm -hmm. if I kept it. But I sat there for a few minutes thinking about it, and I thought, I can't, I can't, I can't. So I brought it over to the other family. But that was the kind of man he was. He didn't spank me and tell me I was a terrible kid. He knew how to do it in a more powerful way. And so, again, material things for him were to help people. I mean that, literally. He gave away money. If somebody needed something, he was there. And my mother's two sayings that used to drive me crazy, but if every kid grew up with them, it's a benefit. Mom, what should I do? Do what will make you happy. You know, and I had a choice to make. It, I mean, it was at one of our grandchildren's graduation the other day, you know. How do you decide where to go to college? How do you decide what you're going to be when you grow up? The answer is do what will make you happy. Not we want a lawyer so we can be proud. Say, our son, the lawyer. Yeah, one guy I know when he got cancer became the violinist he wanted to be and got a job in an orchestra. Mm-hmm. He lost his life to his parents. Um, and that's you know why I keep saying that. And the other was, Ma, I had a horrible day. Everything went wrong. God is redirecting you. Something good will come of this. And believe me, <laughs> you, say that you know, when you're seven, eight, ten years old, that is not what you're looking for when you come home with a problem. <laughs> I, I used to sit on my bed and talk to God. I would always shut the bedroom door because if somebody came in and said, who are you talking to? I'm not going to say God. And then they'll say, you need a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. But what I learned, there are so many spiritual men and women who will tell you the same thing. Norman mm-hmm. Vincent Peale, I was talking to him about it. He said, yeah, my mother used to say, Norman, if God slams one door further down the corridor, another will be open." Boom. And you know and what that turns him into versus, oh, God, I don't know what to do. Oh, that's terrible. Um, no, they, they refocused you. And uh, you begin to learn, which is really true, there are no coincidences. That I heard from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, that these events redirect your life. There are no coincidences. You just keep moving forward and see what they do to you. And, um, you know, when I think of myself again, one more story. The only C I got in four years of college was in creative writing. I was an artist as a child. I had no interest or talents in writing. And one day after a lecture of mine, somebody said, do you ever think of writing a book and, you know, you can get to more people that way? And I said, no, I'm not a writer. I, I can't write a book. And he got all the people Together, he would talk to somebody, talk to some. Next thing I know, you got a whole bunch of people who are going to help you write a book. And what I did was sit down and talk for hours, like I'm talking to you, and recorded it. And it was turned into a book. But again, I thought, no coincidence that somebody in the audience comes up and says that to you. And that's the beginning of a change in you and, you know, and, and developing a skill. Because I learned how to write a letter to everyone. That's that, that I learned from a writer, William Saroyan. Mm-hmm. It was in one of his mm-hmm. stories. Write a letter to everyone. So mm-hmm. 
you know, whether it's an email or a letter, it just flows out, and I don't worry about the words, the punctuation, or anything. I'm mm. just expressing myself. Mm. And attitude, I'll stop, and then if you have a question. I had a pin <laughs> with the word attitude on it that I used to give people because it's so important. Uh, I mean, what you believe, well, Monday morning, my heart attack, stroke, suicides, and illnesses. And when you test actors in a comedy, immune function goes up, hor- uh, stress hormones down, and the opposite in a tragedy. So your feelings, your attitude. And uh, this one couple used it in a very nice way, and I think everybody needs to, because when her husband wasn't doing what was good for him, she would spin the pin around and say, honey, straighten out your attitude. And that's what people need to work on. You know, you can rehearse and practice and become the person you want to be. Think of, you you know, that, again, as William Soroyan said, almost everybody alive is an actor, but almost everybody alive is a very pathetic actor. That's why you're given <laughs> a lifetime to rehearse and practice. You know, and if people want to read a book about life, read The Human Comedy. And because hmm. it's for children, for adults, it's for everybody. It's a wonderful story. Uh, about life and death, uh, you know, it's similar it's t- in World War II, but it's like what's going on in the world now. It doesn't change. Yeah. I will take that. I will take that human comedy book in mind. All right. You know, it, it, it's it's you're saying some really powerful things. It's tough for individuals who have experienced child abuse because they see themselves through the adults. It's like those. Mm-hmm. Animals see themselves through whom they're around. So when the adults look at them with venom or hunger or, or you know, sexual desire or uh, beating up or rage, that that's that's what gets internalized inside of the child. It programs right. the brain. So yeah, to uh, say to say to a child who has that so deeply enmeshed, you know, you need to learn how to self love. It's a little yeah. bit like what is that, you know, like, what is that? Because uh, can a person really self-love if they haven't experienced the love like the person well, I think at the beginning of the program? Two things, that you've got to express appropriate anger. I tell it to patients and I tell it to children, too. I mean, if you're being abused, you speak up. Don't become the submissive sufferer. See, that's part of what exposes people to the illness. Identical twins. One's a good little girl who takes all the abuse and doesn't bother the parents. And the other's a devil who screams and yells and does what she wants to do and drives her parents crazy. The good girl's more likely to get breast cancer. She's internalizing everything. So I learned, I grew up with a big family. Uh, And I don't mean that in terms of, uh, I just had one sister, but each of my parents was one of six, so we always had a mob. And if you wanted attention, you had to make noise. When I met Mm. my wife, who was an only child in a small family, she said, your family is so noisy. I said, what are you talking about? And she opened the door to the house before we went in and said, stand here a minute. And the noise that billowed out was incredible. And I laughed. And I never heard it, you know, because I was so used to it. But I explained to her, it's not that we're angry at each other, but if we want attention, we raise our voice so people turn towards us. And my wife and I had five children. And one of them said to me, you're getting a divorce. I said, what are you talking about? You make a lot of noise. 
I said, look, with the five of you, if I don't like how you're behaving or what's going on, I make noise. I want you to know what I'm saying. I want you to hear me. But I love your mother. And he said, well, the neighbors were yelling and they're getting a divorce, his friend's parents. Uh, but mm-hmm. I realized it was important for me to let them know that the anger did not mean I don't love you. And uh, that we have to understand, that there's appropriate anger. And to me, as I say, it's appropriate when you're not treated with respect as a person. Then you say something. You don't become the submissive sufferer. Uh, You know, you don't become the good patient. You speak up and you let them know. (laughs) And uh, it's sad, but it's so true. And and, uh, the children who are abused, the other thing I found in, in schools when I go in to talk to all grades, uh, in high school, uh, three-quarters of the kids have contemplated suicide. Right. Those are figures from studies. And I would say to the kids, what I want you to do is write a suicide note tonight, why you ought to commit suicide for homework, and also write a love note, why we should love you, what's lovable about you. The teachers often didn't know I was going to do these things, and they would panic. Oh, my God, they'll kill themselves. I said, watch what happens. Because what I learned was, having been brought up with love, the other kids were lying to me. Hey, what happened? You got a black eye. Yeah, I fell off my bike. No, what happened was his father punched him in the head. Right. You know? And so I learned that they're lying to each other. And if you're loved, you assume everybody's got parents like you. And if you're abused, you think nobody's got parents like me. Right. But once they brought in the pile and put them on the desk, put the suicide on the left and the love on the right side of my desk, the suicide pile is always three or four times higher. And then therapy starts. And literally, once schools did it and studied it, the suicide rate went down because school became therapy. You know, how you doing? What happened? And they talk to each other and you get it out and you start asking for help. And as I said, whether you're doctor, teacher, it doesn't matter. If somebody comes along and says, hey, I love you, um, then all the difference in the world. That's why that suicidal kid in my office, when she said, you're my CD, I thought, i got to tell that to a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know, and that we can all be chosen mothers or chosen dads for others, and they stay alive because of it. Because they know somebody cares and gets them to see themselves differently. You know, many times people will say to me that I tried to get love from somebody, and but I kept choosing these abusers because clearly they're, you know, they're they're resonating with the same sort of thing that they were. I'll tell about. you what I tell people. Glad you brought that up. Two things: be a love warrior, and look for life coaches. Now, the life coach is like your, your chosen parent. I mean, they are people who will be critical of you as a coach is. That's what I try to explain to people. That if I said to one of our kids, get down from there. Why? Why can't I climb a tree? Because if you fell out, you could kill yourself. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's saying to them, there are some things you don't do. Um, but that's what a coach is telling you, how to do it better, how to do it safely. The coach doesn't say, you're a failure, you embarrass me, you're an idiot. No, it's, let me show you how to do it. And 
the other, what was I thinking, life coach, oh yeah, the love warrior, that when people drive you crazy, say I love you to them. And I mean it. I mean, I've done this out on the street sometimes when people were screaming at me and threatening me. And I said, I love you. And the person turned, got in her car and drove away. And people were going to, one guy said, I was just about to knock her down. I didn't know what she was going to do to you. I mean, I I don't know whether she was on drugs. I mean, it's like a a psychotic person. Um, Even when people scream at me, you're taking my parking space. I love you. Then they stop screaming and usually drive away mm-hmm. instead of waiting for me to back out and give it to them. Um, but here's the practical side. You have alcoholic parents. You hear me talk about be a love warrior. And she started saying I love you to her parents every day. And she said to me, they don't even answer me. You know, what you're saying is ridiculous. A few months went by. She came in the office. What is it? I was late today, so I ran out of the house. My parents were in the street screaming, you forgot something. I said, I got my books. I got my lunch. What are you talking about? I forgot something. You didn't say I love you today. Hmm. She said, I ran back, and we were all hugging and crying in the street. And her life changed that day. Wow. So keep saying to people, I love you. And you could send an email. You could leave mm-hmm. a phone message, but I always say, do it for three months and then skip a day. And guess who's going to call you and say, are you okay? What happened? Yeah, because everybody needs that love. Okay, so but then let me kind of know. let me yeah. kind of throw a, a wrench in this and see what you do with it. <laughs> you know, a lot of times people were counseled. A lot of books were written in the 70s about when the most important thing to do if you've been sexually abused is to forgive your abuser. And what happened is the consequence. Is people were forgiving their abusers and returning time seven times plus to their abuser, always hoping that their forgiveness and their love was going to heal or change the abuser, as opposed yeah. to realizing that the forgiveness was actually keeping them looped in this sense of guilt and responsibility right. and even shame that they weren't enough to stop the person from being abusive. So I yeah. hear your message about being a love lawyer, but I think I really want to caution well, Let me people. tell you how I learned how to do that. Okay. Um Well, or even Nelson Mandela. See, he's saying it right, too. He said, if I don't forgive the people who put me in the concentration camp, then I'm still in a concentration camp. What you have to do is create the still pond, the quiet mind. Because we were robbed by somebody who had a key to our hotel room. And I saw this weird man in the hallway, and I I knew there was something strange. And when we got back from dinner, he had robbed the room of anything of value. And I kept picturing him in my mind. See, if I could meet that guy again, I'd beat that son of a bitch. I'd tear him apart. I'd get even with him. I'd. And then I realized one day, he is still robbing you. All you keep doing is thinking about him. Mm-hmm. And that really, I realized, yeah. How much of my day I'm spending with this guy in my mind? Because I was mad at the police because they didn't... I told them what he looked like. I said he must have known somebody in the hotel because he had a key and, you know... But they never found him. And then Christmas came around. And I thought, this really popped into my head. Wow. What if he pawned all the things he stole from us 
got some cash, and bought his kids some wonderful gifts. Hmm. And then I had a smile on my face. Hmm. I thought, oh, what a nice guy. What a good thing. I'm glad he stole them. <laughs> I mean it. it. It was such a relief to me to not have a burden anymore. And that's what the forgiveness is about. You forgive the action. Um, in a sense, you forgive the person for that act. But it isn't about, again, being submissive and letting them keep abusing you. You can get the hell out of there. You can speak up. You can report people to the police. Um, you can tell your school teacher what your parents are doing. Because um, that was another thing. I would say draw a picture of your home and family. And that helped change the parents. Because, see, then it wasn't me criticizing them. They go, oh, well, you don't know how to forgive. You're no good. Um, I said, look at what your child drew. And uh, one picture pops into my head when the child with cancer was sitting all alone in a chair and the rest of the family was on a sofa with an empty seat still available. They said, thank you. We see what you mean when she says, I don't get enough time for my family. Hmm. Yeah. So if you let the child speak, but those were parents who cared. You know, there are other parents who yeah, say, oh, right. that's, you, know, you know, but you can't change other people except by your behavior. And humor has to be a part of it, too. In our house, love and humor always existed because the humor helped you get over the problems. I mean, it could be my wife, when I'm angry, saying, you're so handsome when you're angry, and I start laughing. Um, it could be the kids, what I call coaching, when I would act in a way they didn't like, uh, become too demanding and, of them. They would say, you're not in the operating room now to let me know I wasn't in charge of everything. Hmm. See, they didn't say you're a horrible father. You're not in the operating room now. And my sense of humor <laughs> was, you know why your mother and I will never get a divorce? Why not, Dad? Because neither one of us wants the children. And then they knew <laughs> they better quiet down, you know. But they could laugh at it because they knew their father, you Not know, them. was kidding. That was that was his punchline to get them to stop all the noise. See, we, we had, oh boy, on my memories, when my wife gave birth to twins, she had been exposed to German measles. But I figured she was a school teacher. She probably was immune, et cetera, et cetera. But she wasn't. And they were born with hearing impairment, which you don't realize when you have two newborn kids, you know. Right. But they got into fights in the living room and, and were described as bad children at school. And my wife was one who realized they're not hearing. That's their problem. They've got to be tested because they would turn the TV up and then their siblings would yell at them because it was too loud. The teachers would say, your kids don't pay any attention to what's going on in the class. Yeah, they can't hear you. Even the pediatrician said, oh, well, he's looking out the window. That's why he didn't hear me call his name. I, I mean, that blew my mind, too. You yeah. know, a physician doesn't say, we'll test his hearing. My wife had to insist. Then it was found that they were impaired and... Uh, you know, steps were taken to help them. But you have to look into all these things. You know, is it something physical, real? Uh, is it all emotional? Um, but if you keep loving, 
I think you can overcome all of those things and keep using the love as a weapon. I think that uh, the people that will be listening to this program and that have experienced child abuse would be an envy of your wife and you and and the relationship your children have because this is not something that they can even imagine to have parents that can be sarcastic and know that it's loving. They they know fear and terror and avoidance and hiding. When I let love into my prison, it changed every negative item, meaning the experiences in my life, and turned them into something meaningful. See, she so, made well, how would how would you how would you recommend a person who lives in a virtual vacuum of love to even begin to contemplate what love and self love even feels like or looks like? Well. I say oftentimes, create a shrine in your house. Now, what does that consist of? Okay. Why Susan had a problem. I said, do you have a picture of yourself as a baby? No. <clears throat> but if somebody has a picture of themselves, or if you don't have one taken, I say, put pictures of yourselves around the house. And every time you walk past that picture, love that child. How? See, I have pictures what of does my that parents. Mean? I mean, love yourself. Look at that kid and love it. But what does that mean? It's a picture of you. What do you mean? What Mm -hmm. does that mean? Yeah, because these people actually don't even know what self-love means. They have no... All right, but you start working on it, see? All right. You look at that kid and you say, what a cute, lovable kid. I often Mm -hmm. say to people in the hospital, you're going in, take a baby picture with you of yourself. And when people come in the room and say, who's that kid? Say, it's me. Oh, and then they fall in love with you, even though, you you know, you're the kid. Mm -hmm. So mm-hmm. it's working at it. That's why I say you got to rehearse and practice. Mm-hmm. You can't wake up tomorrow, it's very unlikely, and say, oh, I'm lovely, I'm wonderful. Uh, you've got to work at it. It's training. See, in, in the front hallway in our house, uh, as I mentioned, I was a painter as a kid, and I painted portraits of every single child, grandchild, and my parents and myself. Mm-hmm. They're hanging in our house. When I walk down the hall, my mother and father are looking at me. And I know they're loving me, so I feel better about myself. I learned from my painting of myself what a problem I was. Because I painted myself as a surgeon, covered up with a mask and gown. And, and, and uh, I needed therapy at that time, see? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. of all my pain over the things I couldn't fix and cure. I was covering up all my feelings, and I painted myself covered up. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was the one who helped me, you know, became my therapist. And because her question to me from my drawing was, what are you covering up? And I knew it was all my feelings. Because she said, look, I gave you a white piece of paper, and you used a white crayon. The paper's already white. What do you need the crayon for? And I had made snow on a mountain. And... Boy, she hit me with those simple words. And then I thought of the painting and how I I just wasn't able to deal with all the pain. I wanted to help people and fix things. So I'm a doctor. And then you realize you can't cure everything. And you have to learn. Yeah. You have to learn, as I said, to help people live. Um, And so, again, that the forgiveness is letting go. Let me let me give you a specific example in our house. 
as I said, it's full of pets. And I brought a dog in, and everybody said, be careful, because you have a rabbit, you have cats, you have other creatures in the house. The dog has to get to know everybody. It may hurt them. After about 10 days, I stepped out of the house for a few minutes and left the pet door open so they weren't separated from each other. And when I came home, the dog had grabbed the cat, I mean the rabbit, and injured it. And I felt horrible. Took the rabbit to the vet, had to work on it, and so forth and so on. And one evening, I used to bring the rabbit in when it got dark. I mean, it's a fenced-in yard, but I always worried if a predator jumped over the fence. Right. So I would bring the rabbit in in, in the dark, when it got dark. I couldn't find the rabbit as it was getting dark. And I walked around the yard, where the hell is the rabbit? And the dog was lying on the ground. His name was Furfy, named after his fur, <laughs> a lot of fur. Mm-hmm. Um, I went over to Furfy to pet him. And who was lying under the dog? The rabbit. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, my God, you talk about forgiveness. He threatens her life. And now they're best friends. And she's using him so she can stay out late, you know. And that's <laughs> what forgiveness is about. I mean, they were friends for life. She just forgave him for what he did. And now he can give her something. You know, that makes it different. And again, like the thief, when I picture him giving his kids a Christmas present, he's giving me a smile. So when you learn how to forgive, and it's so much attitude. I studied the survivors in concentration camps when I started support groups for patients because I wanted to know what I can learn from survivors. Psychiatrists understand that, that they have common traits and personalities, that it's not just you're lucky. Or as doctors say, oh, you had a spontaneous remission. It isn't. It's self-induced. See? It's because of the change in the people. And this one doctor wrote an article about how amazed he was when his whole community was thrown into the concentration camp and told, if you can't work... We will not feed you or we'll shoot, you know, put a bullet through your head. And he thought, well, hold the, all these poor people, they're going to die, all the sick people. And they didn't. And he realized their mind rejected their illness. And they found the ability to work so that they could be fed and survive. And, I mean, that's the kind of stuff, when I read that, it's so powerful. But, again, it's what somebody experienced. You know, it's like, again, back to your childhood. You're not loved, you don't take care of yourself. And I can tell you this, if people want to check on this, go into an assisted living facility, nursing home, and Mm -hmm. say to the people there, did your parents love you? Almost every hand in the room goes up, and they look at you like, what are you, crazy? Of course they loved us. Yeah, but as I said, go into a high school and say, did your parents love you? No. Mm. No. Yeah. But the survival Mm. is based upon that love. Mm. And you can work at loving. Loving is giving with no expectations. Mm. You're there to give something to the world. But when you give, you also receive. Mm. I know if I do something for somebody else, I feel good. I mean, it could be holding a door open, you know, 
helping them uh, carry mm-hmm. something out of the supermarket, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I know that everybody's wounded. Don't hide your wounds. You want to help people? This really happened. Go to the supermarket with a bandage over your eye. Everybody will talk to you saying, oh, what happened? Then they tell you what happened to them. And therapy goes on. Because I was poked in the back by a lady who said, you're the only person who stopped in Chapwaz and asked me what happened. And she had a bandage on her eye. And you have to appreciate my sense of humor. I said, because I know what happened. Really? I said, of course. I have an abusive spouse also. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And she looked at me like, oh, I'm not going to talk to you. I said, I'm a doctor. (laughs) That's why I felt different. But, um, But I say to people, go to work with a bandage someplace on your body and watch what your fellow employees tell you that they've never told you before or your neighbors because they see oh you got a problem you'll understand what I'm going through mm-hmm. we're all going through something mm-hmm. so talk, yeah a friend of mine started the happiness club Lionel Ketchian mm-hmm. I do a lot mm-hmm. of things with him now um, you meet once a month the happiness club and we talk and we share, you know, survival behavior. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, it helps people. Hmm. So don't oh, I see hide it here, your the, Conne- the, the Connecticut Pardon? Happiness Club. I can see it on the Internet, the Connecticut Happiness Club. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah there it is. Yeah, I um, just started one at the assisted living facility. Um, oh, wow. Just to try to, you know, give them a chance to talk and hmm. let them know hmm. they're not alone. Hmm. Your uh, example, everybody there has got something, you know, troubling your exa- them. Yeah. Your your example of coming out and just saying, you know, wear that, wear that, wear the badge of your pain outwardly, um, yeah. is an awkward way for me to say it. But the part of that that helps, us, from my point of view, is there's no need to be ashamed for having been abused. Um, That's right. And part and part of the guilt and the shame that people harbor is this wouldn't have happened to me if I'd been loving enough or if I'd been forgiving enough or I'd been good enough yeah. as opposed to, you know, I was abused. I don't need to be ashamed of that. Um, right. it's, it's it wasn't you. on it's, me. That, that, yeah, go ahead. Right. It's, it's, it's the lack of love that your parents had that get them to be, you know, mimics of their parents. It, it just gets passed on. If you grow up with love, you treat your children differently. You grow up without love, you don't. I mean, think about all the mass murdering. Why would somebody take a gun and go to school and shoot other kids? Mm-hmm. Why would somebody drive a car into a crowd? Mm-hmm. Listen to this from East of Eden, John Steinbeck. Mm-hmm. See, I always tell people, read fiction if you want to know the truth. Yeah. Now, that may sound crazy, but it isn't, because the fiction authors observe the world and write about it. What's fiction are the characters they create. And Steinbeck said, um, we all experience rejection. With rejection comes a desire for revenge. With revenge, guilt. And there is the story of mankind. See? Mm -hmm. Seeking revenge, not seeking forgiveness. Seeking Mm -hmm. revenge. And that's what all these people are doing. They're Mm -hmm. killing others to get even with their parents or whoever else may have abused them. And it's so sick. And then what do they do? They usually either shoot themselves or the police kill them, or, you know, they're giving up their life too, because then they feel guilty. But when you're loved, you don't use a gun in that way. One of our 
sons as an FBI agent. And what shook me up at his graduation was, in order to get into the FBI, you have to answer this question. Are you capable of killing someone? And if you don't say yes, then you're not accepted. But, you see, he's not going to run around killing people for no reason. One of his emails to me, he said he spent a half an hour finding a pond for a turtle he found walking on the street. <laughs> now, you know, when you have a kid like that, and that's why I would say grow, as our kids grew up, grow up with animals, with pets. They have a reverence for life. I mean, one of my books is called Love, Animals, and Miracles. And I talked right. about the Seagull Zoo as well as stories from other people. But our home was ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> I didn't know there were zoning laws, but we broke all of them. I mean, we're living, you know, in a regular house with the acre and a half kind of thing. And we got fences for goats and ducks and geese. And in the house, every furry thing is running around because they weren't all in cages. There were dead trees in their bedrooms with um, chameleons and other reptiles living in them. Uh, <laughs> it was ridiculous. Um, but I knew it was done out of love. And I found it fascinating to learn about all these creatures uh, through our kids. And, you know, and so they have grown up caring. I mean, they rescue creatures in the street. You know, uh, see a turtle walking across the street? Yeah, they'll pick it up and bring it in their house um, or find a pond for it. And birds. Uh. And the veterinarians began bringing us all these exotic pets because people didn't want them anymore. And they knew I can give it to the seagulls. Um, and everybody had a name, too. They were like children in the house. And, uh, I mean, I, all these memories come back because I never put my shoes on in the morning without looking for eggs. <laughs> Let me tell you, see, again, what love does, because the animals show it. All the eggs in our house were hatched in incubators. Hmm. So they thought our children were their parents. Because you pop out of an egg, wow. who do you see? Yeah. <clears throat> and when the school buses would come and the kids would go down the driveway, the ducks and geese went with them trying to jump on the bus and go to school. Wow, And it really impressed me, the love that they felt, you know, that they're family. They don't want to be separated. And when we got to a point where there were too many ducks and geese for our yard, I took them down to my folks' house because they lived on a beautiful lake. And um, within a few days, I got a call from my mother. The neighbors want to know something. What? Every time a school bus pulls up, the ducks and geese come walking about half a mile up out of the hmm. pond to the road. And I said, wow. Ma, they're looking for our kids. But that shows hmm. you what love can oh. do. It hmm. doesn't matter what the species is. Yeah, I guess it broke that, my heart. That, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I guess that what the metaphor I want to also lift up out of that story is I think that people that have suffered abuse as children have to recognize that they are, you know, in, in, in order to recover, they're going to have to view themselves as hatchlings, and they're going to have to yeah. view themselves as this new life is going to. They're going to have to hatch themselves, and hopefully find the type of love that your children offered your hatchlings, right. um, because See, truly, if, if it's, you, it's giving you life. 
like the young lady who called me and wanted me to help her commit suicide. See? Yeah. I said, you're a child of God. Mm. I love you. And this is something I say to people. When you get mm. to heaven, there's an admission line. You get on the mm. line. You're, <laughs> when you get to the head of the line, they say, you're next. How do you want to be introduced to God? And if you say, I'm an abused child, come back when you know who you are. Say, I'm a doctor. Come back when you know who you are. Mm. I'm God's child. I'm a part of God. Come on in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people yeah. need to understand they are a child of God. Mm-hmm. They are beautiful. Yes. Regardless of the human tragedy they suffered. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, Dr. Bernie Siegel, thank you so much for sharing yet again with people who have gone through really hard times, giving them vision for what it would be like to to cultivate love in their lives. I so yeah. appreciate that. Anything you wish to say as we end our program? Just to tell them I love them. That's why I'm here oh. talking and taking my lifetime to yeah. help them. And Thank when, you. And this simple statement, when you live in your heart, magic happens. So uh. don't think. Let your heart make up your mind. Mm. Ooh. Well, Bernie, we love you too. Thank you so much Thank for you. opening our that heart. felt good. <laughs> oh, good. All and right. with that Bye-bye shared dear. note, everybody, you just kind of radiate the love out there to yourself in a really loving way, a sincerely loving way, as opposed to self-gratifying. But at the same time, you know there's lots of hunger out there for love and that you're not alone in that impactful sort of moment of where is love. So, Bernie, thank you for giving us some of that love in our heart, some of the vision of love for animals as you metaphorically give it to us yes. and, and for ourselves. Take care, everybody. Much love. Bye. Bye-bye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.